This is page 14, I think, in the, the Church Bibles. Genesis 13 to 14. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he'd first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they, they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, I am giving it to you. So Abraham went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. This is Genesis 14. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch was king of Elassar, Kedolimah was king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Berak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidon, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedalima. In the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year of Kedalima, and the kings with him, oh sorry, I've misread that, and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Sheva, K- 
Kirathan, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Ilparan, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amal- Amalekites, Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Seboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon, against Kedalima, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Alassar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was, fully of tar- was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Er, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relatives had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedalima and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, I can't get that right, sorry, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram went, then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Ana, Eshkol and Mamre. Let them have their share. Thanks, Sam. Great effort. Well done. I'm going to record this on my phone because I thought I had fixed the audio live stream issue from last week, but apparently I have not. So apologies to those of you who are listening on the live stream later. Uh, It's not that it's not working. I'm going to record it. And hopefully that'll work. 
Great. Let's uh, let's pray. Father, we we praise you that you have so richly blessed us through your son Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you that you have not withheld anything good from us. We we praise you that we have your sure promise of our future inheritance sealed in us by the Holy Spirit. And we want to pray, Lord, that even though we don't yet possess that, even though we can't yet see that, that this morning as we remember what you have already done to fulfill your promises, we pray that you would help us to walk by faith, not by sight, to trust your word of promise to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This morning, I am offering you a choice. It's a choice. You can either take home 20 quid today. It's yours. You can just go home and you can have it now. Or you can have what's in this package. Now, I should tell you, what's in the package is much more valuable than 10. It's worth way more than that. But there's only one thing about it. You have to wait until next year before you can open it and have it. So, what do you think? If you're anything like me, it's quite a hard decision, isn't it? You've got this choice between what you can see and have now, and between what you can't see and have to wait for. And the only guarantee you have about the thing that's inside this package is my word of promise. Part of us, I guess, thinks a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush or whatever that proverbial phrase is. Isn't it better just to take what I can have now? I know I've been told that this is worth waiting for, but how can I be sure, especially when I can't see? Surely it's worth taking what I can have and see now. Now, I want you to know that the answer to that question is the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. Not about the 20 quid or the package, but about what Jesus offers us. Because the the decision that Jesus offers us basically boils down to that exact same question. Will you live for what you can see now and have now, for what you can enjoy now, for what you can get out of life now, or will you live for a kingdom of everlasting life, perfect peace and endless joy that you cannot see now, that you have to wait for, but that Jesus says will come someday in the future? Will you live today trusting what your eyes can see, what's the material stuff in front of you, or will you live trusting Jesus' words about what you cannot yet see? It's the most important decision you'll ever make. It's literally life or death. But it actually isn't just that one big decision. That big decision, it works out in lots of small, ordinary, everyday ways. When someone is rude or unkind to you, Will you give in to anger, which feels much more satisfying in the moment? Or will you bless in response, reflect that coming kingdom? When your marriage is hard work, will you pursue happiness somewhere else? 
Or will you persevere in loving your spouse? When you're offered overtime at work, which sort of impinges on church time, will you decide, well, I'd like that, that laptop, so I'll earn a few extra quid? Or will you decide to prioritise being here or at your GC? When tragedy hits, will you give in to despair and cynicism? Or will you cling to the promises of God? And just want to take a moment to publicly commend the example that Josh and Helen have given us in the last couple of weeks of doing that, even through tears. See, it works out in lots of different ways. When you're lonely, will you pursue a relationship with someone who doesn't really love Jesus? Or will you trust that he will provide for what you need? When you're tired, will you just slump on the sofa for the night? Or will you decide to come on Wednesday to pray and encourage others? You see, we constantly live with that choice to either trust what we can see and can have now or to trust in the promise of what we can't see and have to wait for. Now, I know that those aren't easy decisions. They're often painful decisions, costly, difficult things to decide to do. It is hard to wait for what you cannot see, hard to trust in what is only a word of promise. Abraham knew that too. God, like we saw last week, he's promised Abraham this future world of blessing, a land, a place to call home, filled with his own descendants, one of whom will bring blessing to the whole world forever. But right now, Abraham cannot see that. He has zero descendants. And whilst he can see the land, it's filled with a whole bunch of other people who think it's theirs. All he has to go on is, is God's word of promise, God's pledge that he will bring about. And, and last week, we saw both Abraham's faith in that promise and his failure to trust that promise. So we, we see his faith in Genesis 12. God said, go, and Abraham went. He gave up safety and security with his family to go to the place that God had told him. It's an amazing display of faith in the promise of God. But then down in Egypt, Abraham failed terribly. He basically sacrificed his wife to save his own skin. He grasped at whatever safety and security he could find for himself, rather than trusting God's promise. But we saw, didn't we, last week, God's grace to Abraham, even in his failure. Because the fulfillment of God's promises does not depend on our performance, but on God and his promise. So what we see then in the first few verses of our passage today, uh, Abraham retraces his steps out of Egypt through the, the desert Negev region back to the hill country between Bethel and Ai where he was before. And he returns to the altar that he had built before in chapter 12 verse 8. And when he gets there, the altar still stands because the promises of God still stand despite his failure. And once again, Abraham expresses his faith. He calls on the name of the Lord. So Genesis 12 has both inspiring faith and shameful failure. But I think what we're seeing in these next couple of chapters in 13 and 14 is Abraham's faith restored and revived. We're going to see him walking by faith. Four ways Abraham walks by faith, not by sight. So here's the first one. Walk by faith, not by sight, because looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. As Lot and Abraham settle back in Canaan, there is a problem. In chapter 12, the problem was famine. But now in chapter 13, the problem is the opposite, isn't it? They have too much stuff. 
Both Abraham and Lot are wealthy with flocks and herds and tents, and they have so much that there is not enough room for them all. It's like a scene from an old Western movie, isn't it? This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Especially with the Canaanites and Perizzites hanging around as well. And if you've ever shared a two-man tent with another person, and tents, they never have enough room that they advertise, do they? A two-man tent is actually only for one. Uh, If you've ever shared the box room with a sibling, I've been there, I know what it's like. Not enough space always equals arguing. Always equals arguing, doesn't it? It's the same here, verse 7. Quarrelling arose between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's. And so they decide to separate. And in verse 9, Abraham makes Lot the most amazingly generous offer. He offers Lot the first pick on any part of the land. Now it's worth knowing, Abraham is the patriarch. He's the senior one. He is entitled to the first choice. But rather than insisting on his own rights, he gives it up. Now, in offering to Lot, it might look like to us, it looks kind of risky, doesn't it? What if Lot chooses the land that's been promised to Abraham? But what Abraham is doing is he's living by faith in the promise of God. It might look like a risk to us, but it's no such thing. If God has made a promise, there are no risks. And so trusting God's promise, it enables Abraham to live generously and graciously and humbly with open hands. He doesn't have to grasp at what's been promised him because he knows God will give it to him just as he promised. So Abraham makes this incredible offer. Lot understandably jumps at it, verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards her was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. But I want you to notice how Lot chooses where to go. Notice how he chooses where to go. Lot walks by sight. In his reasoning there is no reference to God or to God's promises he just goes with what his eyes can see with what he can have now and it all looks good on the surface doesn't it it's a well watered garden a bit like Eden therefore it's fertile Lot chooses what looks like the best land but that's the problem with walking by sight looks can be deceiving we're given a couple of hints of that in, the, in that verse. Because we're not just told that it's Eden-like. We're also told that it's Egypt-like. And we should hear that and think, that is not a good move. Don't go back to Egypt. The, 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 that desire to go back to Egypt was one of the great sins of the wilderness generation. Don't go back there, Lot. And then in verse 11, we're told that Lot went east. That doesn't just describe his physical direction, but his theological direction. East is the same direction as Abraham, as Adam went when he left the garden. East is the same direction Cain went when he was banished from the presence of the Lord. East is the same direction as those in Babel went. In Genesis, east is always the wrong direction. But the big hint is at the end of verse 10, isn't it? Um, By the way, when you're reading narrative like Genesis, it's always a good idea to pay very close attention to the narrator's comments. They just throw in the occasional thing to tell you what's going on. And we get one here that gives the whole game away. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
This place that Lot is choosing to go and pitch his tent next to, verse 12, might look fertile and fruitful now, but within a few chapters, it's going to be rubble and ruin. Why? Because the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. Now you've got to think, Lot must know the reputation of those cities. He must know the reputation of those cities, but he went anyway. He made a decision based on what he could see and have now. What was best for his, for his finances, what was best for his comfort, his status, rather than what was best for his soul. He chose what looked materially prosperous, even though he knew it was spiritually dangerous. That's the danger of walking by sight. In the words of John Calvin, our eyes are not to be trusted. Lot fancied he was dwelling in paradise, when in fact he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Of course, Lot makes his excuses. You can sort of hear him, can't you, reasoning to himself, it's not wrong for me to want comfort and security. It's not wrong for me to go and live near the city. I'm not going to live in the city, of course not, never do that. And it's still on the edge of the promised land, more or less anyway. But it leads to near disaster for him and his family. Walk by faith, not by sight. Because looks can be deceiving. Secondly, walk by faith, not by sight. Because God keeps his promises. After uh, Abraham and Lot separate, God, once again, he speaks to Abraham in chapter 14. And God tells Abraham to look around, just like Lot did. But Abraham is to look with the eyes of faith. He's to look, trusting God's promise. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. God is still promising his future, a land, descendants to fill it. But right now, so much seems to stand in the way of that. Sarah is still barren. He doesn't have one descendant, let alone a great nation. Abraham doesn't own one square inch of Canaan, let alone the whole place. But when God makes a promise... You can trust it. What's more, I think Abraham, by faith, he he glimpses something of that future. He's not totally blind to it. He He can see the land. And as he walks through the length and breadth of it, he feels the ground under his feet. He experiences a foretaste of what that future will be when his descendants do possess the whole land. And he builds another altar. Think a sign of his faith that God will keep his promise. And it's the same for us, isn't it? God has made us lots of promises about things that we can neither see nor touch. Sometimes it feels hard, almost impossible to live by faith. But we've got more than Abraham. We can look back at thousands of years and see the way that God has kept his promises. And even more than that, God has given us his spirit. Line we heard earlier from Ephesians 1, it's the deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. God doesn't just make us a promise and leave it there. He makes a promise and then guarantees it through the presence of his spirit. And as we gather together each Sunday like this, we we glimpse something of that future. 
And so we can keep trusting God and living by faith because we know God is a God who keeps his promises. Walk by faith, not by sight, because God keeps his promises. Thirdly, walk by faith, not by sight, because Jesus redeems his people. We're into chapter 14 now, which, as you heard when Sam read, it's basically just a long list of kings having battles against each other. <laughs> and we're first introduced to this alliance of four kings, and they're all from the north, the area northeast of Israel, so sort of where Babylon is. Four kings all allied together from that region. They're led by this guy, Kedileoma. And they've made these cities in Canaan subject to them. They want tribute from them. They want goods and uh, you know, crops and all that kind of stuff and money to, to subjugate them. But after 12 years of subjugation, these cities in Canaan, they have decided enough is enough. And so the five kings of Canaan come together to form a rebel alliance. And when Kedileoma hears about this, when, you know, when no tribute comes in in the 13th year, he gets his forces together. And in verse 5 to 7, they march from north to south. They reassert their strength. They sweep through the land. So they, they come down, if I use this, they come down from here. They sweep through Rephaim. They smash the Zuzumites. They go past the Emites. Then they go down past south to the Horites back up here, past the Amalekites, smash them, smash the Amorites, and then the five kings of Canaan come out to meet them in the Valley of Siddim, just here. To resist the foreign oppressors. But we're barely given any description of the battle, are we? Like all the others, it is a no contest. Resistance to these kings is absolutely futile, like everyone else before them. The kings of Canaan are routed and plundered. Their people, food and goods are carried off back to Babylon. But unless you're particularly interested in Middle Eastern military history, you might be forgiven for wondering, what on earth is the point of all of this? Why do we need this long list of kings and battles? So far it feels a little bit like when you read the news reports about war in Ukraine or, or somewhere else. It's sad, it's tragic, it's painful for those people, but it feels a bit distant to us. But then in verse 12 it gets close to home. Because these people, they didn't just carry off goods and possessions, they also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And now it's not just some faraway people that Abraham's never met. It's his own nephew. His nephew is a prisoner of war. But you shouldn't miss that little detail, by the way. In chapter 13, Lot was only living near Sodom. And of course he told himself he'd never go and live in Sodom. Of course not. But where is he by chapter 14? He's living in sin city and that's why he gets caught up in all of this it's a warning to us about sort of dabbling on the edge of sin thinking that we can have a little bit but walk away anytime we want doesn't work like that it always draws you in in the end anyway in verse 13 Abraham finds out about Lot being taken away and I wonder what you expect him to do I'll tell you what I would do if I was in Abraham's shoes I'd be thinking listen Lot you made your bed mate lie in it I gave you the pick of the land you chose Sodom this is your own stupid fault so you've only got yourself to blame mate I'm not risking my life to save your 
foolish backside. This is a mess of Lot's own making. Why should he do that? I, I read recently that when someone asks us to help, we only do so if we can answer yes to, to these two questions. Does this person deserve my help? If yes, then we move on to the next question. Can I help this person without inconveniencing myself too much? Only if we can answer yes to both questions do we help someone. It's not like us. It's hard to help people who have made deliberate choices to get themselves into their own mess. It's hard to help people like that, isn't it? Especially when helping them will cost you, will inconvenience you. But that's precisely what Abraham does. And in going out to rescue Lot, Abraham shows us something of what Jesus is like. Because when it comes to our need to be rescued, we don't tick either box. We did not deserve Jesus' help. We made our own mess through our own deliberate sinful choices. And rescuing us was far from convenient for Jesus. It came at massive cost for him, even the cost of his own life. And Abraham, in his rescue of Lot, he pictures something of what Jesus does for us. Even though Lot doesn't deserve it, even though it costs Abraham risking his life, he goes out to rescue him. He pursues these kings uh, from, from Mamre here for miles up to the north towards Dan where he uh, miraculously defeats them. He has this incredibly weak army against this mighty military force and somehow Abraham defeats them. And not just defeats them, then he chases them out of town, back up to Babylon where they belong. And everything is restored. Abraham recovers all the goods and possessions, all the people from slavery. It is full redemption. All of the captives set free. And remember this isn't really Abraham's fight. He's only got involved because of Lot. Abraham is just a tenant in the land. It's not really his responsibility to, to get rid of these kings. That's the responsibility of the other kings in the area. But Abraham is living by faith. He trusts this land will be mine one day. And so he acts like the landlord. He acts like the king. He takes responsibility to chase away these foreign oppressors. He risks his life because he trusts God's promise. It's a massive transformation from chapter 12, isn't it? In chapter 12, Abraham risked Sarah's life to save his own. Here, he risks his own life to save his stupid nephew. And Jesus has done the same for us, except Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave his life for us. If you're a Christian, Lot's story is your story. But what it means is that now you're free. You've been redeemed by Jesus at great cost to him. It means you're no longer captive to sin. You don't have to go back to Sodom like Lot does. There's far more value to your existence than just what you can see. This eat, sleep, work, repeat. You have been gloriously redeemed by the King of Heaven. Your life is so much more. You have purpose and freedom. 
to live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You're free to take risks now for the sake of the gospel. Walking by faith in the promises of God who redeems his people. Walk by faith, not by sight, because Jesus redeems his people. And lastly, walk by faith, not by sight, because Jesus blesses his people. So far, chapter 14 is like non-stop, rapid action. From this place to this place, battle after battle. But suddenly in verse 17, the action slows down. It slows down for two very brief conversations between Abraham and two kings. In verse 17, Berah, the king of Sodom, he comes out first. But before he gets a chance to speak, it's almost as if Berah is about to open his mouth to speak. Melchizedek turns up. And he starts to speak to Abraham. He sort of jumps in, interrupting him. And the point of it being structured like this is to invite us to contrast the two kings. We're meant to see the differences between Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and Berah, the king of Sodom. So Melchizedek, he's the king of Salem, or Shalom. He is the king of the city of peace. Berah is the king of Sodom, which as we've seen, is the city of sin. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, Melchizedek. Berah, as we've seen, is the king of wickedness. Already they're different characters, but we're also meant to contrast their different responses to Abraham. So in verse 18, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and blessing. You see that? He blesses Abraham. He confirms the blessing of chapter 12 that Abraham's already received. And he praises God for blessing Abraham, especially in delivering his enemies into his hand. I think what's happening is, in the aftermath of this incredible victory, Abraham might be tempted to think that he is brilliant. And Melchizedek comes out to remind Abraham... It's all about the blessing of God, Abraham. Abraham, it's God who's making you great, just like he promised. It's God who is blessing you and blessing those who bless you and opposing those who oppose you. It is God who's keeping his promises to you. And I think Abraham recognises that that's right and that's why he gives this gift. He gives a gift to Melchizedek of a tenth of all he recovered. It's given to Melchizedek but it's not for Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek's a priest. Priests offer gifts to God. And so I think Abraham in giving this gift, it's a kind of thank you gift to God. It's an acknowledgement that it really is God who's blessing him and he's grateful for that through Melchizedek given to God. Only then, after being made to wait, sort of almost, you know, mouth open, ready to speak, just been interrupted, only then does the king of Sodom speak. And how different is the king of Sodom? Think about this. The city of Salem was not rescued. Salem was safe. And yet Melchizedek still brings out bread and wine and blessing. The city of Sodom was rescued but Berah brings out nothing not even so much as a thank you do you see that verse 21 the first words out of his mouth are give me it's like 
mate, do you not realise what's happened? You ought to be saying, thank you, not give me. There is no honour, no gratitude, there is no blessing. In fact, he tries to bargain with Abraham. Give me the people, you keep the stuff for yourself. Do you see the difference? Melchizedek comes out and says, Abraham, let's praise the Lord. And Berah comes out and says, give me my stuff. The king of Sodom is only interested in what he can get from Abraham. And he wants to, to cut a deal with him. Sodom's best lawyers, while Abraham has been travelling back, they've been drawing up the contract. And it comes with a big signing on fee for Abraham. Abraham can keep all the plundered goods for himself if he will enter, I think, into a kind of alliance with Sodom. But Abraham turns it down. He refuses the riches of this world. Why? I think because he realises that if he accepts this deal with Sodom, it might look worldly wise, but it would actually be to compromise his trust in the promises of God. God has promised to bless him, to give him this land. So he doesn't need to grasp for it through this unholy alliance with the city of sin. Abraham knows his reward is not the plunder of the nations, but God himself. And so he can trust God to provide, to make him great, to bless him. Abraham walks by faith, not by sight, because he knows the blessing of God. He doesn't do that perfectly. We've already seen that. Got lots more failures to come as well. But he is genuinely trusting the Lord. And, and you and I, we're invited to do the same because every single day, the world is basically offering you this kind of deal. The world is, is offering you its own promises of blessing. Offering you the promise of comfort through material possessions. Security through money, satisfaction through giving yourself to success at work, escape from the hardships of this world through alcohol and social media. And all you've got to do is compromise your trust in the promise of God. But Abraham's interaction with Melchizedek it shows us what we need to keep holding on to God's promises. We need to meet with Jesus. Other parts of the Bible make it really clear. Uh, Psalm 110, Hebrews 7, you can look at them when you get home if you like. They make this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. And you can probably start to see them, right? And Melchizedek is this great king priest through whom Abraham is blessed. Reminding him that he doesn't need to walk by sight. He doesn't need to make this unholy alliance. Instead, he can walk by faith, trusting God's promise. And Melchizedek is a bit like Jesus, Jesus, the true king of righteousness, the true prince of peace, the great king priest through whom we are blessed. In fact, as we've seen in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, our sin is forgiven. We've been adopted by heavenly father. We have been filled with the spirit. We have this sure promise of God. Our future inheritance guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit. And it's as if every week Jesus brings out bread and wine to help us remember his blessing and look forward to the fulfillment of his promise. 
That's what we're doing every week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are remembering the blessing of Jesus and looking forward to the fulfillment of his promises, just like Melchizedek does for Abraham. If you've met with Jesus like that, if you've met with Jesus like that and been assured of his blessing, assured of the trustworthiness of his promises, you don't need to cut a deal with the world and what it's offering you. You can walk by faith, not by sight, because Jesus blesses his people. So keep waiting for the package. Keep trusting that what God promises is much better than what the world offers. Keep walking by faith, not by sight, because God's promises never fail. And what he promises never disappoints. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you so much for how you have blessed us in the Lord Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we, we pray that knowing your blessing, knowing the promise that you have made to us for the future, that you would help us not to compromise with the world, but to walk by faith, trusting your word of promise. Help us when that's hard, when it's hard to wait for what we can't see, to keep trusting you, to keep walking by faith, not by sight. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.